Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. If you would, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 John. We're going to be reading from chapter 1, the first four verses. But before I read that passage of scripture, let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, you've heard from us this morning as we sing and pray to you. Now we ask that we would hear a word from you. Be with the one who preaches, forgive him of his sins, quicken his mind and, and, and guard his mouth that he would rightly divide the word of truth. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When Jesus was standing before Pilate, he made a a statement. He said, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. To that, Pilate responded, what is truth? Now, Pilate didn't know the answer to that question, but he certainly understood the category of truth Jesus was talking about. Pilate understood that Jesus was talking about the truth about the big things, cosmic things, God-like things. When Pilate asked Jesus what is truth, he wasn't really looking for an answer. It was a rhetorical question to show his cynicism about anybody really being able to know that kind of truth. And you know what? Pilate was right. How can any of us, in and of ourselves, know what is true about God? After all, the only means that we have to discern what is true about God is our mind processing what our physical senses reveal to us. We can only know what we can see or hear. And while God is present everywhere, he's also spirit and he's completely invisible to all of our senses. So what can we possibly know? Or we can look at creation and we can see the proof of his existence. We can survey the expanse of the universe. Oh, it's so vast. We don't even have any idea how big the universe is as much as we know today. Some astronomers even pretend that it or contend that it is infinite, that it has no limits. But we can look at the vastness of the universe. We can look at the complexity of the universe, the beauty of the universe, the order of the universe. It is not a chaotic place. It is a place that obeys the same physical laws from one corner to the, to the next. 
And we can, when we sur survey all that, examine all that, we can see that there is a creator who possesses unlimited knowledge and unlimited power. But the universe can't tell us anything else about God. It can't tell us if he, if he loves us or hates us or if he's completely indifferent to us. The universe can't tell us if God has a plan for us. It can't tell us if he, if he wants us to find him. And if he does want us to find him, the universe can't tell us how we might do that. Beyond his infinite knowledge and power, we really can't perceive anything else about God. The only chance we have is if, if God would somehow stoop down to us and reveal himself to us. Now, over the centuries, various men have claimed that God spoke to them, that he revealed himself to them, who he is, what he's about, and what he requires of us as his creatures. And through these various truth claims that have been presented to the world, we have seen the rise of the religions of Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Mormonism, Islam, and dozens if not hundreds of other faith traditions. While all of these religions are distinct and different, they all present a different view of God. For some there's one God, for some there's an infinite number of God. They all present different requirements that God would put on us. But they have this one thing in common. Every religion makes the same claim of exclusivity. Every religion claims that their way is the right way. Their way is the only way. So how do you know what to believe? How do you know which path to God is right? Or maybe there isn't just one path to God. At least that's the prevailing view of truth today. We live in the postmodern age where there is no such thing as absolute truth, especially as it pertains to God and morality. Instead, all truth is relative. There's only my truth, my experiences, my perceptions, my preferences reveal what is true about God to me. And your experiences, your preferences, your perceptions reveal what is true about God to you. So again, how do you know what to believe? Well, that's what this passage of Scripture this morning is all about. It's about how you can know what to believe. But before we get into the passage itself, I want to look at the context for just a minute. This passage is the introduction to a letter that John wrote to a church or to a collection of churches. And he wrote this letter because they were in danger of Embracing heretical teaching. False teachers had come into the church and they had introduced a new theology that contradicted the gospel. Now, according to these false teachers, the spiritual realm is inherently good. But the material world, everything that's material, including the human body, is inherently evil. And since the body is inherently evil and God could never clothe himself with anything that was evil, Jesus could not have possibly had a physical body. 
He only appeared to have a physical body. It was an illusion. Or his body was made up of some heavenly substance, but he was not flesh and bone. And since he did not really have a body, he didn't really die. He only appeared to die. And he didn't really rise from the dead. He only appeared to rise from the dead. And since Jesus didn't have a body, and since he didn't really die, and he didn't really raise from the dead, then salvation could not possibly come through the atoning work of Christ. Instead, the way these false teachers taught, the way one was saved was by connecting directly with God through a secret, mystical knowledge. It was a knowledge that couldn't be taught. It couldn't be communicated. Each person had to find that secret, mystical knowledge all on their own. This was the first century version of my truth. Well, let's get to the passage in our passage, John reminds us that God has revealed himself to us. But not in some secret mystical knowledge is just floating around out there that we have to find on our own. No, God has revealed himself to us publicly. He has revealed himself to us visibly and verbally. And he has revealed himself to us in such a way that it is verifiable. Let's see what John had to say. First, John reminds us that in the Christian faith, there is a record of eyewitnesses. There are eyewitness accounts to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And chief among these witnesses were the apostles. And here John reminds his readers that the apostles were with Jesus from the very beginning of his public ministry. And he reminds his readers that their testimony was of the things that they actually heard and saw and touched. First, the things the apostles heard. They heard the teaching of Jesus. Teaching that astonished everybody who heard it. It even astonished Jesus' enemies. Now, I've heard some really good preachers in my time. I know you have too. I have heard Billy Graham preach in person. I've heard R.C. Sproul preach in per person. I've heard Sinclair Ferguson preach in person. I've heard, uh, you, you won't know about him, but a man, a preacher by the name of Steve Brown, D. James Kennedy, I've heard him preach in person. And the one thing that all these preachers had in common, they had great presence behind the pulpit. And they all had fantastic delivery. And they all really did have a firm grasp of the material that they were speaking about that day. And every one of these preachers, and there were others, every one of these preachers impressed me. But none of them astonished me. Astonishment is at a whole higher level than being impressed. Well, what was it about the teaching of Jesus that astonished people? What was it that was so much more compelling than any other type of, of teaching? Well, we can see what it was by reading in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Now, verse of, these two verses say this. Immediately on the Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, 
he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now you have to remember that Jews living in Palestine in the first century, they were accustomed to receiving regularly a regular religious instruction. Every Sabbath, they would either go to the temple or one of the other synagogues if you lived outside of Jerusalem to receive religious teaching from the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel. When the scribes taught, they quoted tradition. They quoted interpretations of other teachers. They quoted opinion. But on this day, in this passage of Scripture, this congregation heard Jesus speak on his own authority, quoting only the Word of God, nothing else. No opinion, no other interpretation, no one else's view, his view on what that passage of Scripture said. The thing about Jesus' teaching, it produced in the listener the sense that everything he was saying could be relied upon as being true. The word of God, spoken by God, has that effect. It can be relied upon as being true. Well, what did they hear Jesus say when he taught? Well, they heard Jesus declare some things about himself. He declared that he himself was eternal that he was one with the Father in heaven, that he in fact came down from heaven. They heard him forgive people of their sins. Who has that kind of power to forgive people of their sins? In essence, Jesus was declaring to the world that he is God. He is the God who moved over the face of the waters. He is the God who parted the Red Sea. He is the God who appeared in the burning bush. He is the God that made all things and holds all things together. He is God. They also heard Jesus make some proclamations about the kingdom of heaven, which he said belongs to him. He made proclamations about the way of salvation, which he said is only through him. And they heard him make proclamations about the coming judgment of the world. Jesus said it would be executed by him. They also heard Jesus make some declarations about the church. Now before we get into that, I want to ask you a question. I want to meddle just a little bit. What is your view of the church? By that I don't mean this building. This building is not the church. As beautiful as it is and, and conducive as it is to bringing us to a place of worship. This, is, this building is not the church. It's the property of the church. We are the church. Every professing believer and their baptized children are members of the church. Well, what's your view of the church? What's your appreciation of the body? Is it essential? Or is it something else? Here's what Jesus said about the church. Jesus said that he would 
build his church. It's not a human construct. It, it, a bunch of human men and women didn't get together one time and say, well, you know, we, we all believe kind of the same thing. Maybe we should form a club. You know, kind of like the Rotary Club, only we'll talk about religious stuff. No, it's not a human construct. This is a body that was built by Christ. And how did he build it? How is he continuing to build it? Well, first he started by dying for the church. Paul says this in, a, in the book of Ephesians about Christ's view of the church. See if it lines up with yours. He loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how he built the church. And he continues to build the church by drawing us to him through the convicting and regenerating power of the Holy Spirit making us part of that body. He is building his church. Not only is he building his church, but he is preserving his church. Our continued existence is important to Jesus. He's preserving the church so that not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. Well, he's not only building his church, not only is he preserving his church, but he's done so for a purpose. After Jesus declared to his apostles that he was going to build his church and preserve his church, he made a statement, not about the church, to the church. And here it is. This is from Matthew 16, verse 19. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus was telling his apostles that when he left, when he returned to heaven, that his authority on earth would reside in the church. It is to the church that Jesus gave the authority to preach the pure gospel. It is to the church that Jesus gave the authority to rightly administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it is to the church, and you may not like this one, but it's true nonetheless. It is to the church that Jesus gave the authority to affirm and discipline citizens of his kingdom. If you are in Christ, you are also in the church and you are accountable to the church. Is that your view of the church? Well, Jesus, the apostles didn't just hear what Jesus said. They didn't hear his teaching. They heard something else. They heard the voice of the Father affirming that Jesus is who he says he is and that he had the authority to say the things he said. One day the apostles were with Jesus on top of a high mountain. And while they were there, Moses and Elijah suddenly appeared. And they were talking with Jesus. And a cloud suddenly appeared over the heads of the apostles. And from within the cloud, they heard the voice of God speaking to them. And this is what he said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then there are the things not only the apostles heard, but there are the things the apostles saw. They saw irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the eternal son of God. They saw all the miracles that he performed, proving that he is master over the natural world and the supernatural world. They saw him turn water into wine. They saw him walk on top of water. They saw him calm violent storms with just a word. They saw him feed 5,000 men with just two fish and five little loaves of bread. 
They saw him cast out demons, heal the sick, heal the blind, heal the lame, raise the dead. They saw all the miracles that Jesus performed. Interesting note, we who have been in the church for a long time may think we know all the miracles, you know, we're familiar with the Gospels, we know all the, all the miracles of Jesus, we don't. What you have is not an exhaustive list of miracles, it's a selective list. The apostles gave us just enough so that we might believe. Read the last verse of the Gospel of John and you'll see that the miracles of Jesus were far more in number than what we have in the, in the Word of God. But anyway, they saw all the miracles that, that Jesus performed. What would be a reasonable response to seeing all the miracles of Jesus? Well, a reasonable response would be like that of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was one of the religious leaders in Israel, came to Jesus by night at some risk to himself. He was part of the religious ruling class in Israel, the ruling class that opposed Jesus. So, so Nicodemus came at some risk, but he came anyway, and he said this to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. A reasonable response to seeing the miracles of Jesus would be to believe all the words of Jesus. Well, they didn't just see the miracles of Jesus. The apostles also saw Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory. I mentioned earlier an incident where the apostles were with Jesus on top of a high mountain and Moses and Elijah appeared and the cloud came over them and God spoke from the cloud. Well, another thing happened on top of that mountain. The apostles saw Jesus transformed from the Son of Man into the presence of brilliant white light. That may be of what, what prompted Paul to write this about God. He said that he dwells in unapproachable light. They saw Jesus up to that point. All they ever saw was his humanity. On that day, they saw Jesus in the majesty of his deity. So they saw the miracles. They saw the pre-incarnate glory of Christ. They also were witnesses to his death. They saw the crucifixion. They saw the Roman soldiers who were experts at carrying out executions verify that he was dead. They saw the tomb where he was buried. They saw the stone rolled in front of it, sealing him in. But then three, day later, three days later, they saw something else. They saw Jesus in his resurrected body. They saw him walking around. For 40 days after Jesus came out of the tomb, the apostles lived with him. They ate with him. They conversed with him. The one who was dead is now alive. And then there's the thing that the apostles touched. They touched the body of Jesus. I mentioned earlier this fake or, or false theology that's going around that Jesus didn't really have a, a physical body. The apostles, they touched Jesus. They embraced Jesus. He was not an illusion. He was a man of flesh and bone. They touched him before he was crucified, and they touched him after he rose from the grave. That's the testimony of the apostles. John reminds us, these are the things that we heard and saw and touched. But how reliable is their testimony? 
We have a judge in the room. He, he knows all about looking at the reliability of witnesses. Some are better than others. But I want you to consider three things about the reliability of the apostles' testimony. First, consider the number of witnesses. We don't just have one witness. We have 12 witnesses, 12 men who all testified to hearing and seeing and touching exactly the same thing. Then there's not only the number of witnesses, but there's the personal resolve of the apostles to keep on testifying, even though it put them at great personal risk. They were ordered by the Jewish authorities to stop preaching, quit talking about Jesus. And when they wouldn't do it, they were beaten, but they preached on. They were arrested but they preached on. When a prominent member of the church, a man by the name of Stephen, was killed for preaching the gospel, the apostles preached on. When the entire church came under intense persecution, the apostles preached on. When one of their own number, an apostle by the name of James, was beheaded for preaching the gospel, the apostles preached on. In spite of beatings, in spite of imprisonment, in spite of the threat of death, they were resolute in continuing to share their testimony about what they heard and saw and touched. And then finally, besides the, uh, the final test of, of reliability, besides the number of witnesses and their personal resolve, was the physical confirmation that they were telling the truth. The book of Acts is full of incidents where the apostles, like Jesus, performed signs and wonders as they taught. They healed the sick. They raised the dead as they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, proving that their testimony was validated by God himself. After talking about reminding us about the apostles' testimony, John writes about an essential fellowship. He, first he says that we are to be in fellowship with the apostles. Now, when we think of the word fellowship, we think of sharing a good meal, a beverage, and good conversation with someone. That, that's fellowship. That's not what the word means. Literally, the word means to be joined together with someone in partnership or communion. Here, John is saying, do you want to know what kind of religion is approved by God? It's a kind of religion where you're joined together in communion with his apostles. What does that look like, being joined together in communion with the apostles? Let's look at the example of the early church. In Acts 2.42, Luke wrote this about the church. He said, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Devoted themselves. The early church saw the apostles as the authoritative source of truth about all things related to God. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. They saw it all. They heard it all. They touched it all. Not only that, it was the miracles that they performed that validated their testimony. So the early church, they were committed to following the teaching of the apostles. It was the, the rule of their new faith. Like the early church, we are to be devoted to the teaching of the apostles. We are to believe every word of their testimony about the life and death and resurrection of Christ. We are to believe every point of doctrine that they presented to the church. And we are to obey every commandment that they issued to the church. If we reject anything they say, whether that's a word of doctrine, a commandment, 
then we are not in fellowship with the apostles. Why is it so important to be in fellowship with the apostles? John tells us that because the apostles were themselves in fellowship with God. They were joined together in a very special way in communion with God. Now the apostles were not the only followers of Jesus. He had a much larger following than those 12 men. But they were handpicked by Jesus to receive special attention and instruction while he was on earth. And they were also handpicked to receive a special endowment of grace and power after he left earth. Jesus made these promises to the, the apostles before he left. First is John 14, verse 26. The helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in John 16, 13, he said, when the spirit of, of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Here's the promise from Jesus to these 12 apostles, these men who have written to us what they heard and saw and touched. They would receive perfect recall. Perfect recall. They would remember everything in vivid, accurate detail about the life of Christ. Nothing was a blur. Nothing was misconstrued. Nothing. Well, did you remember it this way? Well, I kind of remembered it this way. No, none of that. They remembered in vividly accurate detail the life of Christ. And not only that, when they would be guided by the Holy Spirit into all truth, the truth about who God is and what he has done since the beginning of time, the truth about our sinfulness and the way of salvation, the truth about our union into the body of Christ, the truth about his second coming and the judgment, the truth about right living. These are the things that the apostles received. They received it from Jesus while he was alive, and they received it from the Holy Spirit after Jesus left. Why are we to be in fellowship with the apostles? Because they were chosen by God, empowered by God to speak for God. And we are so blessed. We have the record of their testimony. We have the record of the apostles' testimony. You know, when we think about this New Testament, we don't think of it as a historical document, but it is. Just because the theme of these books is spiritual in nature doesn't mean it's any less historical evidence. The four Gospels, eyewitness testimonies to the life and death and resurrection of Christ. The book of Acts, eyewitness testimony to the ministry of the apostles and the growth of the early church. The epistles of the New Testament is the written record of the things the apostles taught the church. The book of Revelation, the last word of prophecy that God gave humanity through the apostles. Oh, we're to be in fellowship with the apostles. Every Sunday we confess our faith together. This morning we use the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes we use the Nicene Creed. And one of the statements in this ancient creed is this, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We believe in one holy church, one that is set apart by God for God. We believe in one Catholic church. That is not a reference to the Roman Catholic church. The word Catholic means is the, it has the same meaning as universal or the whole. In other words, we believe that the church is comprised of all believers from all ages, from every place. 
And then finally, we believe in one apostolic church. We believe in the church that is founded on the teaching of the apostles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry of preaching, for you use this to impart to us your grace. May your grace move us to become more and more, both in our thinking and in our behaving, like your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.